This podcast was recorded on January 22, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we are broadcasting live. I guess we're always live, but I like to say it when we actually have the videos uh, rolling. We're here in Chicago with none other than Jim Bianco. How are you, Jim? I'm doing well. Thanks yeah. for having me. Welcome. So we're putting this on the YouTube channel, so those of you that are listening to this want to watch um, and see what we actually look like today, it's at youtube.com backslash Capital. You can see some of our videos. Jim was uh, out at our um, first inaugural I guess, is it first inaugural, but the inaugural yep. uh, Roundtable Prime uh, in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. And so given we were coming here, uh, we thought we'd follow up and, and kind of continue some of that dialogue. So thanks for, thanks for joining us, Jim. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope we don't scare too many people away that they get to look at us instead of just listen to yeah, us. Yeah, so again, if you're watching this on YouTube, feel free to go to the audio-only version and you don't have to, <laughs> don't have to suffer through all this. But um, so, you know, we started talking, you know, before the cameras started rolling, we were talking about Davos. And so... Um, you said, did you see the, hear the great news out of, uh, from Bob Prince today? And I read the headline. I didn't really go much deeper into it. Maybe you can tell us what you're hearing from Davos to start us off. Yeah, um, the, the news today was he was interviewed this morning on uh, Bloomberg TV, and he proclaimed that there will be no more boom-bust cycles anymore. Yeah. And that, uh, so we've got the end of the uh, business cycle. Yeah. Was uh, that kind of what Yellen said, too? There'll be another, yeah. I think she said another financial crisis. No financial crisis in our right. lifetime. I mean, things are yeah. just looking up in the 20s already. Right, right. Yeah. exactly, right. exactly. Uh, I thought the best, of course, we all know that history is riddled with people that have proclaimed the end of the business cycle. Uh, the famous one was uh, uh, Irving Fisher, the economist in 1929, who said that we're at a permanently high plateau. And a few weeks later, we had the stock market crash in the Great Depression. But they had Carmen Reinhardt on after him, and she was the co-author of the book, This Time is Different, with Ken Rogoff. Yes. And she said that the first instance of somebody proclaiming the end of the business cycle was the king of Spain in 1588 when the Spanish Armada was created. And he said, there will be no more business cycles now because we've got this thing. And then it sunk a few months later and <laughs> when they had a business cycle right after that. So are you here to say this is the top? Is that, is that what you're saying? Is that, no, is I, I think yeah. that, you know, to be serious about it— right. um, I, I've always joked that the last person you should ask if we're going to have a recession because they're the most unqualified is an economist. Because an economic expansion should continue forever. Grow fast, grow slow. Look at Australia, 29 years without a recession. But they never do. And the reason they never do is something breaks them. A political instability, a financial crisis, a, a, a supply shock in energy – all of the above, which is sort of what we had in 2008, those things happen and you can't really predict them. So yes, the economists will tell you everything's all systems go, the economy looks good, I see no, no events on the horizon until we have a financial crisis or we have political instability or oil prices shoot up to $200 a barrel. Or a coronavirus. Or a coronavirus, week, right? Yeah, or the coronavirus yeah. winds up being really serious. Yeah. Then you, or a war. 
Yeah. You know, a war is another one. Then you break the economy and you have a recession. So, yes, they always continue until something breaks it. But human nature is it's hard to go more than about 10 years without breaking it. We've got a record expansion going. There's no reason to think it won't continue. But like you said, by the end of this week, the coronavirus could metastasize out of control or something else can happen or something in the Middle East and there's $150 crude oil or something that none of us can continue or contemplate and voila, we've got a recession on our hands. That said, uh, the central banks or the Fed specifically is a serial killer of of economic expansions as well. Was that you? That yeah. That? Uh, I quoted uh, Ben Bernanke that okay. um, economic expansions are often murdered by the Fed, is what he says. And there's a lot of truth to that because the Fed uh, will have the uh, have too tight a policy, an incorrect policy, fearing inflation, and they break the economy. One of the risks I think that the economy has right now is the Fed. This whole QE, not QE debate, um, I think that larger in this debate is the Fed is playing with tools that no one really understands, least all of them, their <laughs> giant balance sheet. And someday they're going to have to pull that balance sheet back. Uh, we don't know what that's going to unleash. They don't know what that's going to unleash. Uh, I've talked to Fed officials. But are they ever going to really actually let it unwind? Um, I mean, as There we is saw- an event that will cause them to let it unwind, okay. the return of inflation. Okay. If we have a return of inflation – they will then be forced to, I think, unwind it. They say two things. They say, well, we've modeled it, and we think we know how, to under, how, it, how it's going to work on the unwind. And I said to them jokingly, yeah, I could make up numbers in a spreadsheet too, and that's my model as well. <laughs> and, and as far as they're going, well, as far as inflation goes, uh, we might move to an average inflation regime. Now, that's techno-speak or Fed-speak for they've got a target of 2% that they might subtly later this year change it to an average of 2%, which means you can go above 2% for a little while, below 2%. Yeah, but what's ha- the look-back period on that? Yeah, I mean, that, that, ha- that's a huge difference, right? Right, you, right, right. It depends on how you think about it, right? Exactly. And they yeah. haven't been – the inflation rate hasn't been above 2% since they adopted the target in 2012. And I've, I joke to them. I liken that to the drill sergeant saying, yeah, these green troops, they've been drilled at Fort Benning and they're ready for action. And then the minute that they get into actual combat, you know, they saw their pants and, they, and everything goes out because it's not the same. It's easy to say we'll have an average 2% target on inflation when you're at 180 and you're at 180 and you're 180, and then it goes to 250, and the markets are getting kind of wobbly, you're going to go up to the, uh, to the microphones and say, nope, average and target, we're not going to move. I don't care if the market doesn't like this. Of course you will, right. you know, and stuff. So good luck with that one yeah, as, but as far as the Fed Doesn't goes. it really look like we're going to get to, you know, close to, I mean, look, I know you're focused on core PCE. I mean, if you right. use the core CPI, we've been really running above that 2% rate for what, about two years now, right? That is correct. Right. But the Fed's target is core PCE. Fair enough. That's what they created. They created this Frankenstein yeah. by using that target. So if they want to, if they want to switch to core P- CPI, they could tell us, and then they could tell us whether or not that two still applies because historically uh, CPI runs about 30 to 50 basis points above PCE. So I assume mm. they would go to 
core CPI and say it's 250 or 225 or something like that. Right. But it's just arbitrary then anyway, if you're just using that kind of um, average uh, differential. So why even change it, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So let's talk about that idea of inflation too. And so what would it take to freak out the Fed? At these levels, like, is this a number of with a three handle on it? Um, is it two fifty um, that you that you just mentioned, or is there really something in the psyche where they're, they they think they have it all under control? So let's let's put some numbers on this. Um, we're at about one eighty or so on core PCE. That's their their target is two. They adopted the target in 2012, and it's been above two exactly one month in seven years. Yeah. Uh, that was that in was 2018. Yeah. yeah, the summer of 18. Because yeah, yeah. I, I just said Powell should go out and take the victory lap. He's the first one to ever accomplish it since they achieved, since they set the target for 30 days, yeah. and then it fell <laughs> yeah. right back under. Um, hey, take your take your victory right. lap though, right? If it goes to 240, that's core PC was to print 240. That would be a 29 year high. So. That's how far we'd have to go. Now, that would be 50 to 60 basis points higher. That would mean core PCE would probably in kind go 50 to 60 basis point higher, and it'd be close to three. You're saying CPI. CPI, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. CPI would go up the same amount, Mm -hmm. roughly the same amount, and it would be close to three. That would be the high point of inflation. That would be... You know, the Wall Street Journal saying three decade high in inflation and and stuff. And that's when you'd have to get that conversation. Now, you may say, well, that's only half a percent away, but it's only it's been half a percent away for nine years. You know, we've been waiting nine years for it to come up. But I think to answer your question, that's what it would take to really get the question moving and it hasn't yet happened. Yeah, well, I mean, um, it just kind of begs, I know it uh, begs the question about the Phillips curve. I know we talked about this the last time you're on, we were doing it remote. You talked about that, well, you have to have the Phillips curve um, in order to have consistency of the messaging. But we've seen now wages, you know, they've been growing roughly 3% or, uh, a year or so. Right. Uh, you saw some kind of dip down in the, in the last numbers, but it's still 3%. It's still running above inflation. So, um, I mean, does the, is the Fed really concerned if wage growth is there um, or is it just that it's fear of the model and the idea of this 30-year history? I think that there was fear of the model, and I think they're backing off of it. You know, last year they did this whole Fed listens tour, and this was all part of, you know, as I termed it, nothing's working. Let's go ask some other people their opinion about what's going on. Hey, good for them. At least that's a— It's a conversation at least, Yeah, exactly, exactly. Don't be so insular that you don't even want to recognize when things don't work. You know, in your business, the money management business, that's the— the, the hallmark of somebody who's got a, who's good at it, that if the first thing you do is recognize that this isn't working right. and you move on. Well, central banks have been bad at doing that. So good for them that they, that they want that route for right now. Uh, but I do think that, so they're, they're backing off on the model. They're now saying that they're, they're going to be a little bit more flexible. Paul in particular has talked about the idea of what the Fed officials call a high-pressure economy, running it hot because wage growth at 3% is above the inflation rate. And the administration has been touting lately that workers are making more than their bo- are getting more pay increases than their bosses. They want that. Yeah. They want that. Now, that's good for the overall economy, it's though, good too. For the economy. And we've seen that in the, in the lower-tier jobs are the ones that have the highest Yes, um, that's rate, good rate for the lower-tier yeah. jobs. It's right. good for the economy. That's a departure because maybe five years ago, the Fed would have looked at that 3% wage number and said, oh, my God, we got to raise rates. We can't let this happen. You know, but now they're, they're willing to let this happen. And 
what's allowing them to do it, I think, again, is the low inflation rate. You know, that that's the pass that they can get. Um, if we get the higher inflation rate, it'll be interesting to see how they handle it. Right. So let's talk about what's in a name. We're talking about the Fed. So QE, not QE, what the Fed's been doing ever since the repo blow up on September 17th. So balance sheets expanded, what, a little more than $400 billion, billion yes. dollars. Uh, since that point in time, the Fed has really said it's not quantitative easing. It's just, you know, liquidity facilities. Um, it looks like they're turning into kind of permanent liquidity facilities. I think Cl uh, Clarida recently said, well, we're going to talk about it in the next couple of months. We're going to figure out what we're going to do with these facilities. Right. Um, so first, is it QE in your mind or not? And or is it leading us to the path down QE? Uh, I know you've been critical of like Brainerd too coming out and saying, well, we should go out to two year terms on the liquidity facilities and the like. So what, what's in the name here? Yeah. So let's let's put a definition of what people mean when they say QE, quantitative easing. What they mean is, is the balance sheet affecting financial markets? That's what they what they mean. Because you can, you, can, you can attack the question two ways. And I think the answer is yes in both ways. One, does it meet the strict definition of quantitative easing? Bernanke gave us one in 2009. He said anytime the Fed increases the reserves in the banking system and, and expands the balance sheet, that's quantitative easing. Okay. okay. That fits that definition. Now, the Fed has been trying to say – you know, trying to modify that definition recently by saying Bernanke's right, but he meant, he forgot the words long-term assets. You know, ten-year notes, bills don't count. Okay, so now you're 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 changing us in midstream. But if the question then becomes, okay, but is it affecting financial markets? I think the answer is yes on two levels. Well, we've had great run in risk assets exactly. since that started, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think level yeah. one is it increases, as you said, liquidity, repo. For those listening that are not steeped in this stuff, it's a collateralized loan. You give me some treasury securities as collateral, I give you money. It is the most common way to finance a securities transaction. If the Fed is stuffing the banks full of reserves by supplying repo to the banks, the 24 primary dealers, that's their universe, and then they go and they supply it to second and third tier firms as well too, they're encouraging securities lending. Right. Now, I mean, when I say securities lending, more than just stocks. I mean bonds and I mean alternatives and everything up and down the line. That should be a boost to risk assets. The second one is signaling, that they are signaling that they will not tolerate any inconveniences to anybody in financial markets. Um, Pat Harker, who's the uh, president of the Philly Fed last week, came out and was basically patting himself on the back in an interview saying, yeah, we did such a good job with this repo thing that the normal year-end volatility wasn't even there. We yeah. even squashed yeah. that all away. Well, I, I love you said it too, because I, I remember in the last press conference, Powell was up there and saying, well, there's always these month-end and quarter-end spikes in repo uh, rates. And to me, it's like, well, it's window dressing, right, for the banks to be able to right. clean up their balance sheet. So it's like we admit that the, I don't want to say rigged or it's gamed in the system, but it is. It's game. And they're saying, well, the gaming, we, help, we helped uh, provide more liquidity to that gaming of the system, right? And that's essentially what they're arguing. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. And when Harker comes out and says that even that normal month-end, quarter-end, year-end stuff, we've even gotten rid of that, he's signaling to speculate with abandon. Because 
there will be, if there's any problem, we'll take care of it. There's a phrase, you've probably heard of the phrase helicopter parent. I don't know if you've heard of the phrase snowplow parent. A snowplow, par- a snowplow parent is one that clears the path for all their kids, every, every, every problem that's out there. We have a snowplow fed. They will clear the path of every problem in the market. Hey, we won't even let a little wobble in repo and on December 31st get you worried as well. And the interesting thing about snowplow parents is if you accuse them of being snowplow parents, they get very angry at you. No, we're not. No, we're not. And if you accuse the Fed of being a snowplow Fed, they get very angry at you. No, we're not. But that's exactly what they are. And so that's signaling that's signaling. Here's liquidity. We will not tolerate any inconveniences for speculation in markets. Is allow, is making people think, yeah, just keep going. If it gets if it gets wobbly, the Fed's got our back, and that's what they've got to be careful of. So on the signaling level, I think it helps to boost asset prices. On the liquidity level, I think it helps to boost asset prices. So if people are asking, is it QE? Meaning, does it raise? equity or asset prices, equities in particular, the answer is yes. Final thought on that. I've always argued that the Fed cannot create a trend. So the market was destined to go up since September 17th. What they can do is make it go up more. They can't make a market that was destined to go down, go up. They can make a market that was destined to go down, go down a little bit less or go down a little bit more, but it's still going to go down. So this market was going to rally. It's just that you're right. The rally since the, they announced this program has been uh, the, the S&P's up on an annualized rate, 55% annualized since, since this problem started. I don't think we'd be up 55% annualized without the Fed, but we'd still be positive. I, I like how you say that since this, we, we're up 55% annualized since this problem started. Right. 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 It's funny that you use the word problem in there. Right. So, uh, so the Fed spent last year doing this kind of peer review or, as you said, just asking for help, looking for guidance out there. Um, the ECB is under review now, too, on their policies. Do you have any insight on what you think that uh, Ms. Lagarde and, and uh, her colleagues in the ECB are going to, to try to do in this next stage? Yeah, I think that they're, they're looking at zero interest, um, excuse me, negative interest rates and saying, is this a good idea? And they've got the Riksbank of Sweden that basically announced, no, it's not, and they raised their rates to zero. So they're... While still buying bonds. Yeah, they're still, still doing buy- quantitative easing in your definition But at as least well. it's, it's a step in the yeah. right direction. No, I, I agree. Like yeah. we, we hate, we loathe negative interest rates. Everybody yeah. loathes negative yeah. interest rates because they're a distortion and they, um, they cause havoc in the financial system. So I think that the ECB is now looking at this. And if I had to guess the way that central bankers are is that uh, they probably behind closed doors are saying, this is really a bad idea. Yeah. But then they're like, so... How do, we, how do we declare victory and get out of this thing? Right. And that's really what they want to do is they want to just basically say negative interest rates are just a brilliant move. Yeah. And the next brilliant move is to go to zero. Exactly. And, they were, you know, and, and that's the way they want to do it without anybody saying, so you admitted you made a mistake. Yeah. I think that's what they're, under, they're, they're uh, trying to unfold with. The problem, if I could say, the problem that they're having with negative interest rates is uh, what I call a populist problem. Uh, the banks... Uh, especially the German banks, will char- if they have a negative interest rate, that means if you deposit money in your checking account, to keep it simple, they will take money from you every month. They only do that for accounts over 300,000 euros. Um, why? Because you, if you can't put 300,000, that's about 500,000 US dollars. You can't put half a million dollars under your mattress. If you have 3,000 euros in the bank, you can put that under your mattress. So they don't want to see 
wholesale withdrawals of small accounts. They don't want to be accused of being, you know, anti um, against the population by punishing them with negative interest rates. But that means that they have now permanently put themselves at a loss. Their borrowing costs are going to leave them if they have to if they have to pay zero on these accounts and receive money at negative, they lose money. And that's where you see in the bank stocks are down. The European bank stocks are near 30-year lows. Uh, and the wow. So they're trying to figure that one out. The other thing Lagarde is trying to do, which is why I think they picked her, is they're hoping that she will use her political skills to lobby for more fiscal stimulus. Right. And That's what I've been telling clients for a while. She's a politician. I think that's you know, Draghi gave her the, the keys of the kingdom. He gave her that last rate cut, which was the market puked at, essentially, right? Right, right. Um, he gave her infinite QE, said, here's what you can do. You know, so it's easy to backtrack from there, but it's not easy to increase those things. So um, that political willpower, I think, is very important. And all you got to do is point to this country and look at how much fiscal stimulus we're doing. Right. right. And so in a in a equilibration of, of the monetary policy around the world, which it's all been coordinated, except we were hiking while they were staying there. Um, I think it is important that, you know, they look to this model. And that's I, I, what I thought is the baseline is that they are going to try to get to zero. Maybe it's not this year, but they're going to have to start signaling to the market. And I think the Riksbank is the is the key thing to watch. Yeah, the Riksbank has led. And I do think that they want to go to zero. What they're hoping for is some kind of an economic rebound. Uh, you know, any kind that they can just latch on to. Aha, yeah, see, the yeah. policy worked. Now yeah. we can go to zero. Right. You know, we'll declare victory and go to zero is what they want to do. Yeah. Uh, but I think that Lagarde has got a problem to the extent that you were brought on to convince the Germans and everybody else to fiscally stimulate. Mm-hmm. And as of we us sitting here talking, there's no movement on that. That's no right. one's interested in yeah. doing that at right. all. So she can talk to she's blue in the face to them over at Davos and they're not going to listen to her right, right. now. Yeah, so I, I think that's that, that's kind of the big focal point too. Is that if we actually get to those, if we get back to zero, let's say in the ECB, um, you know, I, I do think that that's a actually a positive for markets in general. Just to say, look, this policy doesn't work. But I'm reminded of a paper I saw from the IMF last year, and it, it came out towards the end of June or early July of last year, and it was completely opposite rhetoric. It was talking about embracing deeply negative interest rates in the next cycle. Or the, during the next recession, I think was the title. But what it was talking about is exactly the, the situation you were talking about with the banks, that they were saying that it's the central bank's job to set the policy rates. But, you know, charging the consumer, right, as you're talking about, yeah. you deposit your check in there, you get your paycheck, it gets, it gets taxed out. They're saying, well, that's, that's, a, that's not a political problem. That's a PR problem. You're better at customer service, little commercial bank here. So you deal with the customer and you deal with this. And what they were actually arguing for was creating the shadow currency. And so what they were saying is they were going to effectively peg the currency to a level. Let's call it 100 euros today. Well, you can keep your cash, right? If you want to shove it under the mattress, great. But when you want to turn that into ones and zeros in your digital bank account, well, we're going to have a reference rate. So if the policy rate, let's say, is minus 5% for simplicity, well, the 100 euros, if you want to put it back in the banking system, all of what it's going to be worth is 95 euros in one year's time. Right. And they're like, well, that's just a PR problem. It's a customer service relation issue. And I'm like... The hubris in this piece, in this paper that I'm reading, I, it just it ired me. I remember right. you being quite angry. Yeah, it, back yeah. With, with reading that. Right, and it's like, and it's just like to me, it's this peak hubris of the central banks and these PhDs that are not in touch with reality. They're arguing this economic equivalence, but 
they're not rooted in reality. And so I, I hope that, you know, that is Lagarde's mission is to get us off these negative rates and that we don't try to do this like extreme level where they break the banking system. So let me let me depress you a little bit. That okay. was an IMF paper yeah. last year. And who was the head of the IMF when that paper came <laughs> I out? It was Ms. Lagarde. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, know. yeah I know. So I, I, and I, I, she came right. out and praised yeah. that right. paper yeah. as well, yeah. too. Yeah. So right. at least in her public statement, she's been all for this idea about... But that's why she's a politician, trade. right? You argue yeah. what is what is the status quo, right? Exactly. Right. And that's, what, that's why I think that her sup- vocal support of negative rates doesn't wobble markets like, um, like a draggy would because, oh, she's a politician. And when the wind changes, she'll change and it'll all be okay. And that's kind of the way that people, people look at it. But I think as far as that paper goes and some others... They failed to recognize that the entire financial system was designed with the idea of positive interest rates. We designed the system that way. I always used to joke that, you know, if you were to go into a time machine back into the Renaissance, into uh, Venice or into um, Florence, when they developed double entry bookkeeping and uh, fractional uh, reserve banking in the 15th century, and you were in the room when they created it. Now, it wasn't quite that momentous. It kind of evolved over time. And they said, yeah, so this is how we're going to do it. You put, you put 100 Italian lira in the bank and we'll set aside 10 in a reserve account. We'll use the, your 90 to buy other securities or to put out other loans, set aside 10, and keep leveraging ourselves up to make money. How's that work? Well, as long as we get a positive cash flow from all of those securities and all those loans, we keep making money with all of those reserves set aside for a rainy day. And if you raised your hand and said, what happens when interest rates go negative? They would have asked you to leave the room. Right. That's heresy. That, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the world doesn't yeah. work that way. Right. But my point is, negative interest rates, if you want to keep them, you have to have a wholesale redesign of the entire financial system. It does not work with negative interest rates. We're not ready to do that. We're still in the period of this square peg called negative interest rates. We'll just keep pounding it in the round hole of a financial system that was built for positive rates and will be nothing but problems. And the last thought on that for you is what has given the world a big out with negative interest rates is the big reserve currency, the U.S. dollar, has not been negative. Right. That would be the game changer. You know, so I also bristle whenever I see these papers, well, they've had negative rates for 10 years in, in Japan, and they've had it for five years in, in Europe, and, and the world is, is doing okay. I'm like, well, first of all, their economies are struggling. Their banking systems are a mess. Their stocks and, are, are a mess. The banking stocks, right? Yeah, the I banking mean, yeah, stocks right. are a mess. And they've got the giant out of... The U.S., the U.K., Canada, New Zealand, and Australia never went positive. The five English-speaking countries, I don't know if that's, real, if that's a coincidence or what, but they've never gone positive. Deutsche Bank has restructured its entire reserve management system globally, which is code word for no longer do we invest in reserve, German reserves in Germany and Italian reserves in Italy. We now invest them all in positive-yielding stuff like in the U.K. and the U.S., we go negative, and then you'll see the real negative effects because we're the reserve currency. Mm-hmm. We're the biggest uh, financial market in, on the planet. Then you will really see the markets quake, I think, if we went negative. I don't think we're going to go negative. What I fear is, when we were talking about before, something breaks and we get the recession – I worry what their response is going to be right. in a recession. But well, you, fortunately, well you, we don't have that right now. But you, you have someone like Bernanke, 
um, even Yellen going out publicly talking about negative interest rate policy in this country. And at least I, I say Powell's rejected it. At least we can brush that off for now. But right. Powell won't be there forever, right. one. And you know he can change his mind, too. And so you know when you think about that response mechanism, wh- why do you think someone like Bernanke, who understands these crises, he's a stu- student of the Depression, he studied the Japanese history, that's how we went to QE, and he's followed in the footsteps of the Japanese model. Um, why doesn't he see it? I, I mean, we talk about it, but like, I mean, is it just that he doesn't want to see it? Is it that that's his framework? Well, I, what do you think? I, if I had to guess, I think it's his framework. He doesn't. It's the assume the can opener, the old joke, right? Right. Like assume the, the yeah. yeah. Assume the can opener. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. That's yeah. a good way to put it because I think what he assumes is they look at, well, when rates go negative, this is what it means for the borrower. Okay, where does that loan come from? It doesn't fall out of the sky like rain. It comes from a financial institution that is structured to try and make a profit off that loan. How do they make a profit off that loan? And the Bernankes of the world, they don't go into that. They just assume the loan will show up. Here's the rate. Here's yeah. what it means for it's the It's a spread, and yeah. it's a spread game. And that's yeah, exactly. all it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and, right. it, and, and that part is, is, is just assumed. Because what I've yet to see in any of the IMF papers or the BIS papers or the Fed papers is an analysis of how the financial system deals with negative interest rates. And the answer is not very well yeah. is, is what they do. So they just assume. All right, well, you know, rates go to minus 1% and we'll just give you a minus 1% loan. Yeah, well, what bank's writing that loan? Right. What bank is giving me that loan? Oh, well, it, we'll just assume it shows up, you know, <laughs> right. and then we'll talk about the consequences of it. And yeah, I think you're right. If we had redesigned the financial system, and by the way, there is a way you can do it. It's called a fully reserved uh, banking system uh, that would work with negative rates. It's completely different than what we have now. Then you could talk about that. But by the way, a fully reserved banking system, um, for those listening, if you want an example of that, go read the Libra white paper, the the Facebook Libra currency white paper of how they would reserve against Libra. They basically explain the fully reserved banking system. Or Go Google the 1933 Chicago plan. The University of Chicago during the Great Depression was pushing that the banking system would go fully reserved. Because then they said once they did that, they could look at negative interest rates, which made sense. First, you change the financial system to accommodate it. Then you could possibly do it. But that's how it would work. And the problem with a fully reserved banking system, without getting into the ugliness of it, is it opens the door for cryptocurrency. It opens the door for digital loans. It opens the door for the obsolescence of the current banking system. Mm -hmm. So, Mr. Diamond, yes, you could be all for a fully reserved banking system, but then we don't need J.P. Morgan in its current form because it serves no function. Right. Uh, you know, you can change it to a fully reserved system, but you have as much experience as me or my 82-year-old mother does with a fully reserved banking system, which means none, none whatsoever. We don't know how that would work. So that's the problem that they face. They just assume that the system can just handle it. And there is a limitation on the system, and that is when you hit negative rates. Okay, so let, let's switch gears here. Let's let's move into the markets too. So we talked about risk assets. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing to me to see um, how much risk assets have run. That's corporate spreads have tightened in significantly since the summer. You talked about the annualized rate of return on the S and P, um, but 
What's going on in the treasury market? What's your feeling about the treasury market? We seem to be stuck here in this range. Center of gravity seems to be about 180. I think we're a little inside of that today. It's like 150 or 145 to 195 is where the 10 years really traded since we, um, since we had the announcement of the new tariffs on August 1st last year, right? That's kind of been that new center of gravity. What does it take to get interest rates to break out of this range, one direction or the other? Yeah, I, I've been... Um I've been a big bond bull for many years. I'm going to channel my inner Van Hoisington here, okay. if you know yeah, who yeah. Van is. Yeah, 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 yeah. A very famous uh, bond investor who's been bullish, uh, I think, since the Reagan administration. And uh, he hasn't been wrong, let's no. put it that yeah, way, yeah. for the last And his 30. arguments are great. When yeah. you sit and listen to it, it makes a lot of sense why it's going to zero. Right. But yeah. we haven't but got there yet. I think that the biggest thing that keeps rates from going up is twofold. The lack of inflation to push rates up and the relentless buying that we have of rates. And the relentless buying that we have of rates comes from the aging population. In the developed world, there are, and I'm talking about the US and Europe and Australia, New Zealand, mm -hmm. there are 300 million people that are age 65 or older, and we're adding them at a rate of about 10 net from over those that pass away to net 10,000 a day. So that in 15 years, we'll be near 400 million people. Um, go to any financial advisor and say, okay, you're, 60, you're in your 60s, you're 65. What is the proper asset mix for you? And it's some version of a 60-40 portfolio. Every day, the wealth gets older. We're getting, every day, we keep telling them, you got to own some kind of fixed income leg in that wealth. If you look at the flows, I think it explains the flows because the big question of 2019 was, Stock market was up 31%. There was a net outflow. And everybody's like, FOMO, FOMO. Well, wait a minute. If there was fear of missing out, why was <laughs> the there a net outflow? Yeah. 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 And the answer is because everybody's looking at a 60-40 portfolio. And since this leg's going up 31%, I can just keep selling it down to keep it at 60. And I keep reinvesting in bonds. So it keeps giving bonds a bid. Mm -hmm. There's no inflation to keep bonds going. And I think there's a limit on the spread. So if the 10-year German is minus 20 basis points, if our rates are going to go to two and a half, that's got to go up to 50. They yeah, got to go positive yeah. 50. Right. They got to move. They got to start moving north as well too, right. because I think we're at the outer limits of about 250 basis points over Germany yep. to what we can do right now. So I think all of those things keep rates down. My other favorite statistic about that spread is the um, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, has data on all of the major countries' interest rates back to the 1950s. The U.S. has the highest interest rates in the developed world for the first time ever yeah. right now. So we are at those limits. What we need for our rates to go up is a global rebound. Right. We need the rest of the world to close the gap with us. And then their rates would start yeah. to come up and they can right. push us up. I if mean, the correlation between developed world rates has been just very, very high for, since really, I'd say about 13 or 14. I mean, yeah. it's almost lockstep. And so let me, let me posit this. What if Lagarde was to move interest rates back to zero on the front end with policy rates? Could that be a catalyst to get rates uh, up, let's say, in the eurozone? Or are we going to have this inverted curve over there where people still have this relentless bid? Um. If she was to move rates to zero, that could be a catalyst to get us higher rates. But let me caution that idea, and this kind of goes back to our previous conversation. Central bankers are kind of like a doctor. They will never give up on the patient. 
You never want to go to a doctor and say, look, you're stage four. Here's some pills to be comfortable. Now go away and die. You know, you know they will try whatever yeah. they can continue to right. try. So central bankers that can- That was what Draghi said, whatever it takes. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. So they could say they're out of bullets. Yeah. Yeah, well, you watch when we have a downturn, what, well, how they're <laughs> going to find more bullets right. and stuff. <laughs> and so what my point of bringing that up is I can't see her raising rates now because of the political blowback. Remember, she's a politician. Mm-hmm. You're raising rates, and there's all of these yellow vest protesters in Paris, and there's all these protesters in Lisbon, uh, and there's all these protesters in Germany, and they're all mad about the state of the economy, and you're hiking rates? You don't care about them? That really plays a lot with the politics of them. They'll need a rebound in order to raise rates. They'll have to lag a a recovery, not try and lead it by raising rates. The Riks Bank can do it. Because they're small, small, you know, and they're they're kind of a, a one-off, yeah. and they're not going to get, uh, you know, you're not going to get global protests over them raising right. rates to zero. Yeah. Oh, it's kind of like when people <laughs> adopted the Icelandic banking model. It's like, but that's Iceland, right? Right. right. I mean, it's not going to drive the global economy. The GDP. You can have a bad bank there, right? Right. Yeah, the right. GDP of <laughs> Cleveland is larger than Iceland. You know, <laughs> I don't know that statistic, but it, I, I would. I, I would that, argue with you. I remember <laughs> yeah. that from uh, Michael Lewis writing about it. Okay. He had that in one of his books. <laughs> oh yeah, because he told that story about everybody being named Igor too yes. right when you're in the bar it's like and, and somehow like there's 40 people in the bar named igor but when you say igor they seem to know which igor you're talking about you yes know? yes uh, and it's not like an inflection or anything it's just i i, and, I and that, he, that part stuck with me that and story. he also yeah. talked about how you when you take an icelandic fisherman and how difficult that job is and you explain to him what it is to be a hedge fund manager speculating in currencies mm-hmm. sign me up yeah <laughs> you know? what an easy yeah. job well, there's a lot there's a lot there's a lot lower mortality rate i think you know yeah, exactly <laughs> one of those professions so yeah. So coming back to that, so you talked about the 60-40, and uh, you, you brought this up at the roundtable a couple of weeks ago, and it really resonated with me because it's this systematic approach that the, the financial advisor anymore, it, it, there's, there's not a lot that it, that focus on security selection or a lot of active, it's just index buying. It's this uh, the static allocation, and they're there to really just educate you that investing is the most important thing, which I agree with. It's the process is very important. Get the asset allocation right, sure, but you got to do something. So, is it at at some point does it br- the system break because of just this group think that we've all been trained to follow this? Here's the algorithm, or here's the the simple formulaic model of how much to own in equities, how much to own in bonds. And ultimately, does that ever turn? Or do we, because at some point we lose the price discovery mechanism, right? That's what we hear about financial markets, right? Right. And if we're all just kind of buying indices or doing the same type of trading, we lose that, right? Yeah. So what what do you think about that? Because I see this too in a lot of the ESG stuff that's out there. Uh, the economic and social governance out there, um, where people are saying, "Well, we, you know, index funds are destroying it." That these people don't have good social governance, social uh, responsibility, and governance. And ultimately, you know, it's all the index funds that are blaming it. So, would it be something like that? That there's this upheaval of thinking, maybe with the newer generation coming in, or how, how do you see that changing? Yeah. So, um, or does it not? Do we just continue on? No economic expansions forever. No. Yeah. yeah. Um, for expansion for now, but I think that to uh, uh, put some numbers on it, just to repeat something I said at the roundtable, the the perfect instrument for the modern wealth manager is the exchange traded fund, the ETF, because now they can structure a portfolio. They can go. I could be a one person shop myself, and I could invest your money. And I say you need to have some of your money in stocks and bonds and alternatives and international and in emerging. And I can now put together that portfolio for you 
using ETFs. 10, 20 years ago, I needed to work for a very large bank that would have very expensive departments that would have all of those things for me to put it together. So that has mushroomed out the advisory committee. And the statistic I threw out is there's 13,000 advisory firms in the United States. Firms. Yes, firms. Half of them have two people or less employed. They have the four. old joke about two guys in a Bloomberg. Huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Two guys in Yahoo.com. Now. Right. It's not even a Bloomberg because they can't afford it. <laughs> <No>. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and then um, 440,000 registered advisors managing 43 million accounts. And the net worth, not what they manage, but the net worth of those 43 million accounts is the majority of the money in the United States. So it has become a dominant force. And they've got everybody in some version of the 60-40. What changes that? I'll go back to what we talked about before, inflation. Right now, the 60-40 portfolio is working tremendous because stocks go up, bonds kind of do this, stocks go down, bonds rally, and a mm -hmm. flight to quality. Mm -hmm. And that seems to work over and over again. Last year, 2019, the 60-40 portfolio returned its best return since 1997. It's like north of 20%, right? Yeah, it was 21? like 21% yeah, yeah, or something, yeah. depending on how you define it right. um, and stuff. If you get inflation and you go back and look what happened when you had inflation in the 70s and 80s, stock and bond prices go down. Mm -hmm. They both go down together. That would be the shock because- We had some of that in the 90s too. People forget that where the correlation was, yes. was positive to both sides, both the up markets and the down markets too. Right. right. Uh, the, the negative correlation to price- that we've had really started following the 98 financial crisis in the 2000 tech bubble. In that period is when it turned, and it's been positive ever since. And I like to say that the root awakening will be when you get inflation is, you, you know, call up, they'll call up your, their wealth advisor and they'll say, how do I make money? And the, and the answer can never be, you don't, you just lose it because <laughs> everything, yeah, no, everything goes down. And then everybody wants to pull their money out. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, when I went to school, we, we were not taught that inflation is positive for stocks. I hear that a lot from people anymore. It is true if you have purchasing or if you have pricing power and you can tr and use that transmission mechanism. But I would argue in this economy now, it's very difficult for people to pass on that inflation right, or that, that pricing power. So um, I, 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 do, I don't know. I just hear it a lot from, from advisors, from clients that, oh, well, we own stocks for inflation hedge. It's like, well, maybe in the medium term, but there has to be this repricing mechanism because the earnings are going to get hit. So they forget in the third yeah. part of that equation, and that's multiples. And that, you know, in the 1970s, stocks worked well as an inflation hedge because the multiple, the P.E. ratio, was five. Sure. It was six. It <laughs> yeah. yeah, now it's 21. Right. And you can't buy a 21 P.E. company and say, oh, and if we get inflation... And remember, inflation is supposed to raise everything, your right. costs mm -hmm. you know, and your product pricing yep. and everything else on, uh, uh, down the line. That's not, a good in, that's not a good inflation hedge at 21. Now, if it goes back to a 5 PE, which is a nice way of saying it goes down 80%, <laughs> yeah, right. then it's a good hedge for inflation <laughs> at, at that point. Well, so, isn't this also, that when you think about this too, you'd mentioned this correlation uh, on price side because of the yield component. But what what I mean, this was the advent of risk parity as well. Like, you know, you think about the Bridgewaters, the AQRs of the world that created this idea of risk parity. It's all predicated on this correlation. Right. right. You know, and so um, does it get exacerbated, you know, in the next if there is this inflation where bond prices start to go down, stocks go down. And then what do you do in, in all this rebalancing? Well, I think it's a rebalance where people walk away like they did in the last crisis. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you've seen you've seen that because. 
If you go back to the fourth quarter of 2018, stop, the Fed raised rates, stock prices fell 20% from September to December. Uh, that's the S&P 500 that fell 20%. And bond prices didn't do a whole lot. Yeah, they, they didn't really d- until like the second half of the quarter, right? It was like in the middle of November, they right. kind of started to rally a little bit. Right. right, and they didn't do a lot. And I would tell you that in that period, there was some real angst. Oh, God, this is bad. This is really terrible. But then before you had a chance to you know, hit the panic button, here comes Jay with his pivot on January 4th. We're yep. going to be patient and flexible. Right. And the Dow was up 1,000 points that day. Right. And he, and brought the, he brought the Uber doves in. He had Bernanke and Yellen together, yes, right? Exactly, right? Yeah. exactly. <laughs> and he basically signaled to you that, you know, I'm the snowplow fed. Yeah. You know, I'm going to clear out every problem that you have and then get mad when you tell me that I do it. Uh, and that's what they did. And before anybody got a chance to panic, it all reversed and it went back. And then 2019 worked very well. Inflation would do it. And again, inflation, 180 on core PC, that's their target. That's their measure. 225, 250, especially closer to 250. 250, That would do it. Because I think there'd be a lot of people listening to us going, inflation, yeah, 1980, 12%. No, 250. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's all you need. (laughs) That's all we need. And we talk about the return on inflation. I'm like, what if we ever saw a three handle again? Oh, yeah. We'd be panicking. Remember, if you're really old enough and you remember wage and price control by Nixon in the early 1970s, what was the intolerable inflation rate that they actually instituted a form of socialism that said, you can't raise prices anymore? It was 3%. It was 3% that panicked everybody into him putting in wage and price controls. Well, we're kind of at that point now. If we ever saw 3%, that's a big deal. I know it's not 1980, but it's 2020 and it's a different environment altogether right now. Right. So back to the, the bond argument too. Why are investors accepting a zero or a negative real yield, depending on what measure you use? Uh, let's say on the 10-year note today, right? I mean, you're talking about a 180 core PC, core CPI is what, 2-3 uh, running right now. If you use headline, they're roughly roughly the same because uh, of commodity prices. But wh- why are investors accepting that kind of erosion of purchasing power uh, is it is it just the robo advisor type of model? It's a, this variation of the sixty forty. Is it that people are panicked um, out there? They just need safety. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense. if we have such a good economy, why we have to have negative real yields? Yeah. Um, first of all, negative real yields. To put some numbers on it, they're pervasive everywhere on the planet, and there are by some measures. I mean, I've got some measures of, of real yields. Thank you, Bank of England, that go back into the 17th century. And this is about as extreme as we've seen in terms of breadth of negative yields. I mean, yeah, they, they spiked down to larger negatives on the 30 year in 1980, but going the whole yield curve in all the countries at the same time, as far as breadth goes, it is, it is negative. I think it is part of, you're right, the robo-advisor, the aging of the population, that they want to own something of safety. This aging of population, this demographic argument for buying bonds, it existed 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. 15 years ago, uh, Bernanke coined the phrase savings glut. He was 100% right about that. 
And Wall Street said, yes, you're right, Ben. There is a savings glut and everybody wants yield. So we're going to take these subprime mortgages and chop them up into little <laughs> CDOs. And we're going to then sell these to the Swedish uh, pension plans because they could get yield. And the rating agencies are going to sign a AAA rating for it. And then in 2008... And we're going to get our leverage from Iceland, don't forget. Right, right. right. <laughs> exactly. The fishermen, yeah, this is way better than being a fisherman. Yeah. And then it all blew up spectacularly in 2008. So what happens now is people look at the 40 leg and they go, boy, I'd like to get some yield. Wait a minute. I don't want that. Don't tell Wall Street I want that yield stuff because they'll come back to me with those impossible to understand structures that, that just created all the havoc in the first place. I'll just buy these negative yields. And what's gotten the, what they've gotten away with, and I'll remind everybody, I'll use an extreme example. If you talk to pension plan or pension managers in Germany, and I've talked to a couple of them in Germany, how do you guys deal with negative rates? In 2019, the answer is best year I've ever had. Have okay. you seen my total return? Right. And my total return is fantastic. I was like, yes, but then. But what do you do on a go forward basis? Yes, yes. Right. Yeah, right. When you mark your portfolio on December 31st with a bunch of negative yields, yeah. and, and then, you know, I, I one time. I uh, had a, a hedge fund one time talk to me, this was a dozen years ago, and he, he referred to, because they're all focused on their 2 and 20 model to make their 20, that that's a January problem. That, you know, <laughs> right now I have to get to 1231, I have to book that big number, I have to get my incentive bonus of 20%. Yeah, I'll, be in, I'll, be, I'll start with my foot in a bucket in January, but... That's after I got paid. After I got paid, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's and incentives so, in the system. Right. right? Yeah, so right. so that, that German pension manager is probably still celebrating that, that bonus check he got three or four weeks ago. Right. Ask him about April, May, or June, what do you think now? And mm -hmm. I think he's going to have a very different response. So I do think that it is part of that. I don't want structure. I do want safety. That the total return has worked, but you're right, on a go-forward basis, unless you want to make the case that the next stop is minus three, minus four, minus five, okay, if we go there, yeah. not only- You're going to make a killing on yeah, it, Yeah, right? you'll make a killing on a total return, right. but then, as I like to say, you will make a ton of money on total return until the moment your bank goes bankrupt and you don't get your money back, because <laughs> they can't survive that system yeah. as well, too. So- it's going to be difficult going forward. And I think that's why the screaming about negative rates really is ratcheted up in the last two or three months. Whereas, remember, it was August, September, when you hit that 17 trillion of negative rates that you didn't see that. And I'm using negative rates as an example for the real rate argument. Uh, and But again, I think the real rate argument is there's just such a demand for securities right now it's by pretty amazing demographic. You talk about the negative real yield, right? So you just talked about negative rates, negative nominal rates. So you are guaranteed to lose money if you buy a negative yielding bond and hold it to maturity. Right? That's one thing compliance allows me to say. It's the only guarantee I can give, right? Right. But, but the <laughs> thing about it is, is that it's, it, it's amazing that the central banks target this negative rate. So they're saying, look, we're going to tax the wealthy or tax the saver, right? It's not, not the you know, one percenters. It's people who are the savers. Again, depending on how much, you got to have at least 300,000 euros. However, we're also going to target a 2% inflation rate. So we're going to blatantly take your money. Then we're also going to let the invisible hand of inflation erode your purchasing power as well. And people are just saying, give me more. Yeah. Right? So I think, I think you're right that at some point that people are going to look at their statements, whether it's the pension manager, whether it's the end client, and they're going to say, well, 
why am I buying this negative yielding stuff? Because people get myopic when they do portfolio review. Look at this negative sign right here, right? And it's not, I'm not talking about the yield, I'm talking about the total return. Because if rates don't go down, you will have a negative rate of return. They have to continue to press down if you have a negative yielding bond, right? That's just the math. So does that, is that like some reflexive thing oh, if we oh, just yeah, stay here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 use, I use this story that I'd like to tell that uh, we're here in Chicago, and it happened just literally a couple blocks from here about four or five years ago. I was standing on a street corner, and I'm just waiting across the street. And some guy walks out in the street and gets hit by a car. Now, he wasn't hurt, but he just walked out in the street, got hit by the car, and exchanged a bunch of colorful language with the driver, dusted himself off and moved on. But what I remembered was I'm sitting there staring at it and he, he was like 10 feet away from me and he walked right out and I should have yelled, watch out, look out. But my initial response was, am I seeing this right? Maybe the angle's wrong. Maybe he knows the car's there. Maybe the car knows he's there. And while I'm processing this, am I seeing what, it, bam, it happens all hit. over. That's, that's this negative rate environment. Is this really happening? This can't be happening. Maybe, they, maybe I'm looking at this wrong. Maybe it'll go away. And then the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're stuck in this gigantic morass uh, of, negative, of negative rates is where we are. You know, um, I, I used the, the example once. I talked to a, a, a bank in Europe, um, and I said, you guys have a stock loan department where you lend securities. Yeah, you lend securities at negative rates. Yeah, you lose money on every security you lend. Yeah. Why do you keep doing it? Because it's one of our business. It's what we do. It's what we do. It's one of our business models. Well, you know, we can't we can't fire everybody and send them away to be Uber drivers for two years and call them back when we get positive rates. So you're 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 like me staring at this guy about to get hit by a car. You don't know what to do. I think we are at that at the end of that phase that we're about ready to yell, "Hey, look out! This is not good." So I do think that there was some of that that initial. This can't be happening. Mm -hmm. You know, and stuff because I and you're actually, making money on it, yeah. and that's the crazy thing too. I mean, yeah. when the what the German boon it bought the bottom and yield was like what negative seventy seven or seventy six yeah. something like that, yeah. and then it's like, well, the, the whole time your total return you were up like ten percent buying something if you bought it like a year earlier because it was roughly seventy in the positive direction, but then. All of a sudden, this mark-to-market comes back, and I, I just felt like it would wake people up a little bit. But I think you're right. It, it has to do it on a calendar year basis. We have right. this this just uh, process where we look in calendar years. We don't look at rolling periods or anything. It's not about these these certain metrics. We have to take these certain anniversaries. And and I think that some of that got obfuscated last year because you had the deep negative, right? I'm calling negative 70 deep, unlike the IMF and the BIS. Um, but we got back to like negative 30 roughly at the end of the year. And so it's like, okay, well, it wasn't – it was still at a positive rate of return. They're not looking at that right. that reversal over the, the what I call the max drawdown period, right? Right, right. Greed – Greed takes over. And I'll give you a, a, a good greed story from, from today. So the day we're talking, Tesla opened up another 3.5% today, and it crossed $100 billion of market cap, passed Volkswagen as the second most valuable auto company in the world. Only Toyota is more, is more valuable than it. Its market cap is nearly the value of Ford, GM, and Chrysler combined. Yeah. They're, they're 108. The rest of the U.S. automotive yeah, industry. Yeah, they're 108, right those three, okay. and Tesla's 102. I and think how many cars do they make relative to the big three? Three hundred thousand yeah, or right. four hundred thousand versus ten million. Yeah. You know, for 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 the for the big three, I think it's a bubble. I think it's it's way overdone. I understand the arguments about it being transformational, but 
you know, even people I know that own it, like, is it a bubble? Yes, but not today. It's up another three and a half percent. Not yeah. tomorrow. Right. It might be up another four percent tomorrow. You know, some point it'll blow up, but not now. Right. You know, and that's what that's what the, the 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 pension manager in Germany was, and that's what everybody was. Are these negative rates awful? Yes, and and uh, uh, yes, but look at my total return. You yeah, know, right. do, you know, when do I sell it? You know, but not now. It's going up. You know, and stuff. Yeah. But eventually, when it stops and the t- returns go away, I think then the grousing becomes larger and larger, yeah. and that's beginning now. Well, one of the beneficiaries, I think, of low <clears throat> rates has been corporate America. I mean, if we shift the topic to that, I mean, you've been tracking zombie companies for a while now. Can you talk about the, the state of health there? And define yeah. a zombie company, too. Yes. Yeah. So um, corporate America. Um, the interesting thing about corporate America, let me, before I get to zombies, let me go off on this real quick. There is something like $600 billion of negative corporate bond yields in Europe and in Japan. 20% of that has been issued by American companies. They issue euro-denominated debt in Europe. It's been great for them because if you're IBM, you have 15,000 employees in Europe and you can issue bonds in Europe at a negative yield and you could finance your European operation at zero. In other words, you don't have to take a currency risk because yeah. you already mm-hmm. have. If you're an American computer company maker, you could issue negative yield in Europe, but then you either have to take a currency risk or you have to hedge it back. And by the time you're done doing that, you're back to the same rate you'd be at in the U.S. and there's no point in doing it. So you're giving them a big competitive advantage. So to your first question, negative rates has been a huge boom for global companies, because global companies, big companies, means you have a European operation and or a Japanese operation. It's now now costing you nothing to finance that. And if you have an American-only competitor, their cost of capital is significantly higher than the rest of the world as well, too, because that, that way you could get rid of that hedging. That breeds into the zombie companies, as you, as you were pointing out, that we, we do track the zombie companies. I think it's around 15% or so of the companies are zombies. Is that, that of publicly listed companies? These are yeah, publicly that, yeah. listed yeah. companies that are losing money, uh, and they are staying in business because of very low interest rates. And so th- that number has So it's not just up. losing money, but it's that, isn't there a further debt? It's not just that it has negative earnings, right? Right. It's a, it actually, it's like they have less than, what is it, the debt service? Or how do right, you Right, right, it? right, yeah, right. Yeah, completely. They have, they have, they are losing money. They have less than the interest expense that they, that they need to, to uh, maintain. That sounds like they should go out of business. But given the liquidity and the low rates, they could constantly refinance. We're here in Chicago. Uh, you know, one of the most bankrupt pension plans in the in the country is the Chicago. Yeah, it's yeah. the Chicago Teachers Plan, right? right? Um, but um, you know, Ernest Hemingway says, "How does one go bankrupt slowly then suddenly?" And yeah. Chicago's been in the slowly phase for thirty years, right. and it could stay in the slowly phase for another week or another thirty years. As long as they go to market, which the Chicago teach, uh, the Chicago school system did last week, and they came to the market, I think it was five hundred million dollars, and people bought it. Yep. And as long as they buy it, we, you know, you could say my numbers are terrible. Doesn't matter. I show up with a bond issue, and you buy it. I live another day. And that's what happens with these zombie companies. Their numbers suggest they should be going out of business, but they come with another bond offering, and it gets bought, and they stay in business. Well, when the cycle turns 
and people don't want that, or the rates go up that you can refinance, but you can refinance into significantly higher rates, and it doesn't matter, they're going to have problems, but they're not now, you right. know, and that's kind of... It's kind of on your still greed argument, right? Yeah, it's, it's like, it's not like a problem. Tesla. Today, it's like Tesla, right. you right. know, is it, is it a bubble? Yes. Is it overvalued? Yes, but not today, right. you know, <laughs> you know and, that's, and that's kind of the way that the, the, the greed is with, when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So what is your outlook for earnings for this year? So do you think that corporate America gets off in last year is going to be, it looks like it's going to be slightly negative according to FactSet if you use those estimates for the fourth quarter. Um, Are we, do, are we set up for poise for a rebound in in earnings this year, or is it just going to be more trudging along a lot of M and a type deals? Uh, How how do you think about what's going on in corporate America and the activity there? You're right. Earnings were negative last year. The market is supposed to lead earnings. It is up big last year on an an, uh, idea that they're going to rebound. Um, By all indications, we'll probably be low single digits by the middle of the year, say 3 to 5% growth. And I tend to lean towards the lower end of that 3, but a positive. I've asked the question, is that enough? for a 31% stock market gain last year, that they're anticipating a rebound in economic activity, which will lead to a rebound in earnings, which will keep the multiples from expanding and maybe even compress them a little bit. Is 3% enough? I don't think it is. Uh, there's a little bit of hope in that number that there, maybe we could squeeze out something better. Maybe a rebound in Europe can get the, re- the earnings, because remember, 40%, 4-0, of the Earn revenues of S&P 500 companies comes from overseas. Give me a global rebound. Maybe we could squeeze out a little bit more out of that, out of that number as well too. And then maybe, as you pointed out, we could do a little bit of alchemy with some M&A or some spinoffs or divestitures or something like that to kind of keep our numbers going. And then lastly, don't forget who's been the big buyer of stocks since the financial crisis, and that has been corporations themselves through buybacks. Five trillion has been bought back. So we could do the IBM thing. And what the IBM thing is, IBM's earnings kept, I know they reported yesterday a very good number, but before that, IBM's earnings and their revenues struggled, 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 struggled. Why didn't the stock go down? Because from 2008 to 2017, they reduced their float by nearly 50%. They just kept just sucking up all of their stock. You know, as I said, the company's worth $22 billion. Pretty soon there'll be one share of value with a price of $22 billion. <laughs> Does anyone even <laughs> issue stock anymore? Does that, does that ever happen anymore? Like, you know, secondary offerings? Do you see that anymore? Not secondaries. Yeah. They try to do initials. Right. And, th- yeah. those, and those, th- those tank. Those right? tank, right. right. Exactly. All those the value's been extracted by the VC and the PE firms. Right, right. Yeah. exactly. Exactly. And so, but no, nobody does. But so there, there is that hope too that the struggling earnings, the struggling, let's call it profit, net income, will be met by a falling denominator of earnings number of shares outstanding to get the EPS to keep it going higher. And that has been a big driver of EPS this cycle, is that if you looked at the profit numbers or if you looked at the earnings numbers, in fact, FactSet did this late January in one of their reports. They looked at profits or margins versus EPS and the margins and the profits are going down, but EPS, is but EPS has been holding, holding up in, yeah. better. I mean, it's still negative in the fourth quarter, but a lot better than profits because we just continue to shrink that base. Buy back more stock, buy back more stock. The tax, I should say in fairness, the tax code does incentivize you to do that. Right. If you have money and you give it out in a dividend, 
it's taxed. Taxed, right. But if I just hoover up all my stock yeah. and squeeze the price higher with a low share outstanding, there's no tax unless you sell it on a capital gain. So the, so the tax incentive is definitely there to do that. All right. Uh, we're getting up on the, the, crux, or the end of time here. But before we do that, um, I want to ask you, like, what's a big risk that you think the market is, is ignoring today? What's something that's on the top of your mind from a risk perspective that isn't getting much play or it's not something widely discussed that you want to tell our listeners about today? The election. And I think that the election, um, I think there's a perception that you're going to get either Biden or Trump as being the president, meaning if anybody else wins, Sanders, mm-hmm. well, then Trump's going to win in a walk. And if Biden gets- That's the assumption that, oh, the socialists can't win. The and socialists so can't that's win. That's how we ended up with Trump, though. It's like, there's no way Trump could win. Right, so may- right, maybe right. you have that revisiting or, that again. Or if, or if Biden is the nominee, everybody exhale because he's a moderate right. and um, you know he won't be so bad. Uh, I think that the mistake in there is- that either a Sanders gets the nomination, and I think there's a realistic chance that he can, a real chance he can, mm-hmm. look at the betting markets and stuff. And, and he'll polls, be- I mean, he's yeah, polling very well again, right? right. I, I saw he the new slipped, polls, yeah. He slipped a little bit in some recent Iowa polls. Um, and the bet, the bet with Sanders, if you look at the betting market real quick, is that he leads in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. The race, first three races. The bet there is the whole month of February, February 3rd starts um, Iowa. The narrative is going to be Bernie wins, Bernie wins, Bernie wins. And Bernie's there with the balloons coming down saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then we start writing the stories, can Bernie be president? And what's wrong with Joe? Why aren't you winning, Joe? Oh, but I'm going to win all these other races later on. Yeah, well, by the time we get there, you won't be in in there anymore. (laughs) Exactly. The momentum could change. But if Joe were to upset right away, he could just wipe it all out before it starts. So I think that there's a realistic chance that Bernie could win. And then I would not immediately say, well, that's it. You know, the commie can't win, become president. Be be careful on that one. Um, If you look at the economic modeling that anybody's done, here's what the economy's doing. First term president. He should be at a 60% approval rating talking about a 49-state landslide. He's 50-50. Yeah. And so he's vulnerable. Yeah. I'm not saying he's going to lose. He's vulnerable. And if Joe wins, um, I think that the mistake they're making about Mr. Moderate Joe is I think that the tug from the left on his party is going to be so strong on him. He won't be Bernie. Right. He won't be Warren. But he'll definitely be a little bit more left than you think. So and he'll probably bring someone that's pretty left as a running mate. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. Right. So I think that you know uh, there's this perception that like people have said it to me, the election's a non-issue because it's either going to be Biden or it's going to be Trump. Mm-hmm. Trump is a known quantity. Right. He's got he's got warts, but it, yeah. but he's the devil we know. Right. Uh, and Biden is is the safe moderate, and maybe we just get it's going to be Joe against. Donald, and therefore we could just ignore it all together. It's like, well, first of all, that might not happen. Second of all, be careful. I don't think that uh, Bernie, I, I mean, Joe is going to be as, as milk toast as you think he is. So I do think that we're not really focusing on the election yet. Uh, what I was going to ask about that, too, do you think there's an impact to a state like California moving its primary up, too? Do you think that that brings more political willpower in here where uh, California gets to kind of push the, the, what would be the candidate uh, on the Democratic Party? Yes, because let's go back to the betting market. Let's say that Bernie wins Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada. 
Uh, Nate Silver 538 has mm-hmm. been jumping up and down on his website saying there is no such thing as momentum. I kind of disagree with him. I think that there did, is. Did he go to Chicago Business School or what? <laughs> they actually did. He yeah, graduated yeah, he did. from right, the right, University right, of yeah, Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, um, that's a factor joke for our, our people that don't know where we're going with that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, he, wanted, he actually wanted a job as uh, a sabermetrician, which is a baseball yeah. statistic yeah. for the Chicago White Sox. They told him no, and the rest, as they say, is history. Otherwise, he could be sitting there uh, for the White Sox trying to figure out how to win a World Series for him. But um, he doesn't think there's anything as momentum. I'll disagree with him. Uh, but Bernie is also leading big in taking California. Mm-hmm. So if you get Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and then you go, oh, yeah, but Joe's got all these other ones. Then the next thing after that, Super Tuesday, right. the biggest prize in Super Tuesday is California. Bernie gets the biggest prize. Joe might win more states. But then what's the narrative the next day? Bernie wins California. Right. The story of Bernie being president doesn't stop. Now we're five weeks into this, right. you know, and all of a sudden – oh, man, this guy could actually wind up being president at 79 years old. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, he also, I mean, he had momentum in the last election, too. I mean, if he, I, 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 I contended that if he'd have started earlier, raising money a little bit earlier, because, I mean, he won. He beat Hillary in, in pretty much like the last 20 or so states. Right. You know, too. I mean, he had a lot of momentum. So, And people seem, you know, even though Mr. Silver says there's no momentum, people like voting for the winner. Right. Right. People, there's something about like, oh, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Bernie. He's winning. Right. Like, you, it, it starts to change the psyche, I'm saying. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, that's where I think that's where I'll disagree with him yeah. is that um, I think that there's a lot of people still today that view uh, election as like a, a contest. That I have to win. Right. I have to pick the person that is going to win. And that that makes me okay. That they're, that these same people are very uncomfortable with picking a third-party candidate or something because then, why'd you do that? You know, oh, I know. Don't ask me why I did that. <laughs> I just want to be safe and pick the winner. You know, like, no, this is not betting on the Super Bowl. Right. You know, but they, tru- they, they view it the same way, you know, that I, I'm going to take San Francisco because they're the favorite. And They're not the favorite, actually. <laughs> they're actually, the betting market has them as a one-point dog, which I think it's disrespectful. Uh, okay. you know, I'm a Niners fan, though, too, but right. I think it's disrespectful for how good that defense is. And anyway. Yeah, or well, maybe they, they like Mahomes, but yeah, we're going yeah, off yeah. on another. Another, another direction. Let's go yeah. back to politics, yeah. which is safer. Yeah. So I do think that the momentum, is, I, I think the momentum's there. And if Bernie takes California, the momentum continues. Yes, you could look further down the line at some of the polls for the states to come in late March and in April and say, Joe's leading, Joe's leading, Joe's leading, Joe's leading. Yeah, well, give me a half a dozen contests in Super Tuesday with a bunch of Bernie wins. Go back and check then after right. that happens. And I'll bet it'll be a far different scenario altogether as well. So let me just ask then, do you think Bernie is the guy that the, the, the Dems are going to put up? Or what, what do you think? Are you, you've been talking about the brokered convention too, right? Yeah, so yeah. The bro- uh, maybe you can explain that to our listeners as well. The brokered convention is if the, the Dems change their rules um, after 2016, the Republicans did this 20 years ago. When you have a primary and you apportion the, uh, the, the votes out of the primary, in the first round of uh, on the election, that's the way everybody's got to vote. So if you're um, an elector from or a delegate, excuse me, from Iowa, and they said, you know, Joe gets X and Bernie gets Y, well, that's what that's the way you vote on the first ballot. They got rid of superdelegates. Superdelegates was 20 percent. They're just the party poobas, the Nancy Pelosi's. They get a they get a they get a vote. They're gone on the first ballot. So in order to win on the first ballot. 
you need to get 50% plus one of the delegates. If you have a Bernie winning and a Joe winning, throw in a, a, a Willis Warren picking off a few states here or there, a Buttigieg picking off a few states here or there, you don't get 50%. You get what's called a brokered convention. The second ballot, now you're going to leave it, you're, you're going to bring back this, the, um, you're going to bring back the uh, superdelegates on the second ballot, and you're going to start loosening the rules on the, elect, uh, the delegates from Iowa can maybe vote a little bit differently because when you go to a second ballot, you can take anybody. So you could say, okay, first ballot, nobody got 50%. Let's go to a second ballot. And we all get together in the smoke-filled room, which, by the way, was developed in Chicago at the Blackstone Hotel just not too far from here, the original smoke-filled room. Getting a lot of history today, in the, too. In the 1890s. Yeah, yeah I'm the Chamber of Commerce for the city yeah. of Chicago. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, we could get together and we could say, okay, we're going to pick a, a popular Democrat. We're going to pick Michelle Obama. And we're all going to get together. We're in the second ballot. We're going to vote Michelle Obama. And everybody's going to be stunned. And before they can ramp up their opposition machine and stuff, 90-day sprint right to the finish. Everybody loves her. They vote for her. Before we realize what happened, she's president of the United States. I'm not saying that will happen, but that's what would happen in a brokered convention. Anybody can be picked then. Not even point. a candidate that's in the Not even a no. candidate that's been Which is run. why you use the Obama example, or is that just your Chicago heritage? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. Michelle, is, Michelle is considered one of the most popular Democrats right now. And I would argue that's because everybody loves the First Lady because she doesn't tax you. She doesn't regulate you. She doesn't do anything to you. So we all love the First Lady. It's when they start doing all those things to us <laughs> yeah. that we have a different opinion. Uh, that we have a different opinion yeah, about them. Yeah. But so she, the reason I picked her is because, according to the polls, the most highly thought of eligible, uh, because Barack's not eligible, right. eligible uh, Democrat is Michelle Obama. You know, so that would be the argument. She doesn't want to run. I mean, from everything I've read, she doesn't want to run because it's ugly, it's terrible, they say nasty things about you. But what about a 90-day sprint right to the finish, yeah. you know, and stuff like that? But you got to get to a brokered convention you got to get to a brokered convention first. All right, so the question is, are we going to have it? Are we going to have a brokered convention, or do you think that we're going to get um, actually someone out of it through the primaries? Well, in order to get a brokered convention, you need a third candidate. to pay, Because if it comes down to a two-horse Bernie uh, 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 Biden race— Then someone, by definition, gets more than 50, yeah. So you're going to need a, a Warren or a Buttigieg to, to, to pick off half a dozen states— Maybe get a big one, um, you know, down the pike or something like that. Like Warren takes a New York, New York or something like that in April. Um, I would say to you, I don't think we're going to get a broker convention, but there's a good chance of it. I think what I'll be watching for in Iowa and New Hampshire is, does one of those other non-Bernie, non-Biden candidates actually show that they've got some legs? Because what usually happens after Iowa, you finish fourth place, your funding, your, 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 your fundraising goes to zero, and you're out of the race in two weeks. But if you can stick around with your funding and, and maybe pick up delegates, you could deny somebody else that 50%. So you absolutely need a third or even better, a fourth real candidate that they just – remember, four years ago, we thought there was going to be a brokered convention because we had, uh, what, 430 Republicans <laughs> yeah. running yeah. against they Trump. They just change each week. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Yeah. But yeah. what happened was – they all fell away right after we went from we went from like literally like 15 or 18 candidates down to three within two weeks after Iowa. It was Rubio, uh, Cruz, 
and Trump, and then we went to two, and then Cruz lost out. Because remember, what typically happens is the last 20 races or so, um, you know, the, the, the second place guy loses money and can't campaign. So the guy that's left gets 80% of the delegates on the back end, and then that pushes them over 50%. So you need somebody to kind of hang around is what you need. The Democrats structurally have got this thing where they get all their money. You know, Bernie's always saying that the average donation is $27 and stuff because they all go to his website and give him money. That means he's got staying power. He can lose, 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 and he keeps getting money, and he keeps sticking around the race. Where if, if the Republicans are a little bit more corporate types, uh, the corporate types, the corporate donor types run away and you're well, they need of, the winner. They need the winner to yeah, get their, their lobbies. Yeah, they're right. And exactly. I, I didn't give you money. The corporate types, I didn't give you money because I like you. I'm, I'm hedging my bets. I give right. everybody money. So, you know, win something and you'll get more money from me. Well, I can't win unless you give me money. Yeah. And that's the catch-22 that they, that they wind up in as well, too. Sounds like Bloomberg has some staying power ability in, within that uh, equation. And it also sounds like uh, Hillary has a chance on that 90-day sprint then. If, if she could get the delegates to – I don't think she's liked enough, you know. <laughs> yeah. But Even Bloomberg, party. Bloomberg yeah. is going to be an interesting case where he says he's willing to spend $2 billion just to not elect Trump. You know, not only just – you know, he's promoting himself. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if we know what that means because – in this era of, of elections, I used to argue that money, and I, I've seen others say this too, money doesn't matter as much because all you need now is $60 a month to pay your Verizon account and make sure that you know, you've got your Twitter handle going. And between the free, free publicity, and if you're Trump, between the free publicity and 71 million people on your Twitter account, uh, boy, you used to pay how much to get that kind of exposure in the past that now with your phone in 15 seconds you can get that? So... I don't know if, 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 if Bloomberg's $2 billion is going to have the oomph it would have had 15 years ago. Boy, that would have been the game changer on top of game changers 15 years ago. It still might be. But in this social media era, I wouldn't be surprised if you find out that that was largely wasted money at the end of the day. That Maybe Trump still loses, but it didn't matter. It, Bloomberg's wasn't, wasn't his money at the margin. Because what is money? Money is is just 10 million commercials. Does anybody watch commercial television anymore? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, you know. And, and, I'm only forced to during sporting events. Exactly, right. exactly. Right. Uh, I don't see Bloomberg commercials or uh, political commercials streaming on Netflix. They're no. streaming on Amazon, on Amazon well, Video. Well, come to California, we don't get a lot of ads anyway. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, very few that people spend money out there. Right. They don't spend right. money here either because we're such a, a Democrat state, you know. Right. But if you go north here, about 80 miles up to Wisconsin, oh, my God, they're just being buried with right. those ads right now. They can't stop seeing them as well. All right. Well, Jim, we could keep you here another few hours, but, um, you know, in the interest of time, before we let you go, let's, uh, let's do Sam's favorite part of the show. Okay. And see, uh, see how our brains are clicking today. All right, Jim. And you're a veteran at this by now, but for our listeners who may not be, that favorite part of the show is Sherman Says. And what I'll do is I'll offer up a series of prompts alternating between Sherman and, and Jim to which they'll provide a top-of-mind response. And you know, the, the joke has always been we're going to try to keep these responses to one word. We'll see if we can achieve that today. It's not a joke. <laughs> well, it hasn't worked yet, I don't think so. Let's start off with Mr. Sherman with U.S. infrastructure. Crumbling. Jim, 
Money market funds. Going up. Tax cuts. Or hikes. (laughs) (laughs) Unlikely. I was going to say that, too. (laughs) Robo-advisors. Big. Central banks. Huge. (laughs) Shale oil. Shale oil for me? Yeah. Uh, Oh, shale oil. Um, Very important. Bubble. Gum. (laughs) (laughs) Core PCE. Low. Indexing. Popular. Fed put. Exists. All right. All day long, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jim, we appreciate it. Thanks again. Thanks for uh, coming over and visiting us on this, uh, as you called it, very warm day in Chicago. Uh, when I 25 say, degrees. Yeah, when I say things with a two and a three handle, that's not the first thing I think of as warm, but we appreciate it. Again, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Um, if you uh, aren't familiar with Jim's work, Bianco Research through uh, Bianco Research through Arbor Research, great, great stuff. Uh, got a great team there, puts stuff together. So um, how can they follow you out there, Jim? Uh, at Bianco Research on Twitter um, or BiancoResearch.com is our website. Okay. So thanks again for coming by. You. you can get this on uh, iTunes, the Double Line website site uh spotify stitcher i think nowadays uh we're we're on youtube as you see uh youtube.com backslash double line capital you can see jim and uh, our other roundtable guests that we just had but it's kind of amazing we did at a rectangular table we called a round table and here today we actually have a round table so (laughs) uh, we finally achieved that goal so anyway thanks again jim thanks for tuning in and uh check out the next episode coming soon presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 Double-Line Capital.